tonight on Arena. Danny O'Mahony and his accordion in a broken talker show called Bello and guitarist Milos Karadalic on why the Beatles are as important as Bach. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena, and you can also live stream the program if you're so so inclined. RTE.ie forward slash Arena will let you see what is happening in studio, which will include in this first item the playing of an accordion. What happens when a master of traditional music from North Kerry brings his story to a Dublin theatre company known for their experimental take on form and narrative? In 2019, accordion player Danny O'Mahony did just that when he contacted Gary Keegan and Phelan Cannon of Broken Talkers Theatre Company to tell his story. And from next week, they go on tour with Bellow, a production featuring Danny, Gary and dancer Emily Kilkenny Roddy. Delighted that Gary Keegan and Danny O'Mahony are with me in studio this evening. I suppose the very most important uh, question I have to ask both of you, uh, did it take from 2019 to 2024 to get this show up on the road because you had to decide to leave the football jerseys outside the door before you even started talking. <laughs> Don't mention the war, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's not often that a Kerry man has to say don't mention the war when it comes to football. I see you smiling very nicely at that one, um, Gary. Are you? I think that was uh, I think that was probably the least of our troubles. Um, <laughs> I I wouldn't necessarily be uh, a football uh, aficionado now, so um, any any kind of prejudice or uh, problem around that was kind of wasn't an issue I had. I don't know about you, Danny. Did you did you find it hard to look it, me in the eye? It was just one other thing we didn't have to disagree about. Yes, yeah, <laughs> there was enough of those. Yeah. Yeah, so not, not a football aficionado uh, by your own admission then, Gary. A traditional music aficionado? Um, no, uh, no, not really. No, to be perfectly, perfectly blunt. Um, I've been on a very steep learning curve the last four or five years um, with Danny. Uh, mm. So I, I do mention in the piece that uh, Danny played a piece um uh, Danny played a tune one day for me um, and I did recognise it and I recognised it from when I was studying music for my intercert and um, uh, the stick across the hob was the name of the, the tune so I um, I suppose that was probably the limit mm. of my kind of understanding of uh, the music the history of the music but you know working with Danny um, yeah, it's been a real education yeah. for me you know over the last few years and then to, to turn that the other way around Danny in terms of you a, a theatre aficionado question mark and an experimental theatre aficionado two question marks possibly experimental indeed Sean the first thing I found myself doing this morning for instance at nine o'clock on a Monday morning was being covered entirely by leather so there you go there, it is an unusual collaboration for that sure. was part of the show and part of the rehearsal process let's I, be very I, clear just to confirm that yes <laughs> indeed yeah. so what brought what, what brought you to Broken Talkers Danny to, to to look at a way of telling your story? I guess, you know, my, my context of, of where I come from, from that tradition, I, I wanted another way of expressing that. I've been all my life sitting on a stage with an accordion talking about that, representing that, mm. expressing that. So there came a time when I was down at UCC as traditional artist in residence, when I was engaging with the theatre department there, to, you know, I had a curiosity around how else this story could be represented to 
perhaps a wider audience even. And is this about, I mean, obviously the way you would normally represent yourself, if if I'm not presuming things, is you play the tune on the accordion, you say everything you want to say with your with your fingers and with the buttons of that machine around your chest right now. The words along the way, they might, t- might tell a little bit of a story behind the song or they might tell a little bit of where you learned it or something like that. But the main focus of what you were doing was the music itself. Yes, but it's the context of the music and, and from where I come, that's the important part of it. The, the tune, yes, uh, but the context first and foremost. Per, perhaps just to go back to the point mm. that, that Gary made about the, the piece that he recognised, the stick across the hob. That was recorded in 1935 by my granduncle in Columbia Records in New York City. And he took the tune from his father, Moss Camerody, who learned it from the blind fiddler Jeremiah Breen and Bally Connery sometime in the late 1800s. And where it came from before that, we're not sure. But that's the lineage of that particular one mm. piece of music. And when you're playing that in, in a... Nor- and I noticed Gary winced slightly when I said a broken talker's show. And then he <laughs> refers to it as a broken talker's piece. And I know this is a big bone of contention. Even within the script, there's an argument about show and piece. But yeah. when, 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 you're, when you're performing something like the stick across the hub in a normal music gig type of situation... How present is that lineage? Where is it in terms of your own expressive qualities? Well, I hold and play the instrument that recorded it in the Columbia Records studio from 1935, belonging to my great, wonderful and celebrated relation, Tom Carmody. I, I smell I smell the instrument as I play it. Mm. Unfortunately, it had, been, it had been lying idle in a shed in North Kerry for some decades before I discovered it. And I had it restored and it's just, it, it's a beautiful thing. I, I hope you get to see it sometime. I don't have it with me yeah. tonight, unfortunately. But so th- that's the, the contact. That's the connection. Um, so, yeah, I brought that instrument back to New York last summer for the first time since it came from there in 1959 when Tom came home to retire. He was there for 40 years. And is, is, that, is that the instrument too that your mother, when she would see you playing it, you, you could almost see her remembering it was her brother's instrument, was it? Or is that a different instrument? That's another instrument that features in the show. So that's my uncle Sonny's instrument. Oh, yes, yeah. And unfortunately, uh, Sonny was killed in a, a, an accident at work before I was born. A young man, a gifted, mm. a gifted accordion player and singer and dancer and his accordion remained in my grandmother's house until my grandmother passed and then my uncle Paddy gave it to me. But up to that point it was only ever taken out on Christmas because that's when he would be using it most in terms of going out with the ran and and the accordion each year after his death was only ever taken out of the box at Christmas and put over the rack over the fire um, because my grandmother would say that, you know, maybe Sonny might want it for the ran. Oh, yeah. So that was my only, you know, that's a very, uh, visually that's very, strong in me, you know, that, that image on, on Christmas of Sonny's accordion being taken out and then put, put away, you know, so I couldn't actually get my hands on it. But yeah, it, it, it was a very sad, uh, a very sad um, time each year when I'd see that happening. And like you say, each time that I play it now and I would play for, for my mom, of course, and, and our, her remaining sisters, Joan and Maudie and my Uncle Paddy, and that, that, there's, there's a sadness and, and also, of course, um, a satisfaction in, in, in them to see yeah. it still being played, you know. 
Which, which kind of answers the question, Gary. And what kind of story do you want to tell? I mean, those two paragraphs that Danny has just given us mm. alone. Yeah. The, the, the wealth of emotion, yeah. the wealth of tradition, mm. the wealth of fa- family history. You mean the wealth of lineage that, that, that Danny brought that tune right back to the, to the 18th, 19th century. Sure. I mean, that's a phenomenal thing to... To, be, to inform the show or the piece that you're making. 100%. And uh, I think that was one of the things that drew us to Danny and Danny's story was the fact that in, in lots of ways he would be quite different to me or Phelan, mm. uh, Phelan Cannon, for example, in, in, in that he is so connected and he's so aware of where he, where he sits along this line of, um, you know, players and, you know, the, the heritage and the lineage, etc. And I guess I, I, I can speak for myself and say that I'm probably less aware of where I'm coming from in terms of my own tradition, my own lineage, mm. even the theatre tradition, something that I might have uh, probably wanted to ignore or disregard in terms of traditional theatre practice that I've seen myself as experimental or whatever it is. So yeah. uh, those conversations are really interesting to, for, I suppose, for the for the experimental contemporary artist to reflect upon their own tradition, to look at Danny's connection with the past and to see how deeply uh, connected he is and how fulfilled he is by being part of something like this is one of definitely one of the threads of the show yeah because one of, one of the there's a scene in, in the show uh, in the piece in Bello where you talk about where you Gary talk about your first production mm. which involves taking Philadelphia Here I Come the script of Philadelphia Here yes. I Come and what did you do with it? Well um, yeah well I, I as I explained in the as I explained in in, in the in Bello that it was, uh, I suppose it was my first, it was a first Broken Talker show. Mm. And um, I, we were trying to, I suppose, kind of, uh, it's ridiculous and embarrassing, but we were trying, I suppose we were trying to improve upon perfection, like Brian Friel's play, this masterpiece. And we thought, oh, well, you know, we've, we, we're going to try some, you know, radical stuff there. So one of the ideas that I had, because we, I suppose we were thinking about the theme of non-communication and the idea of words getting stuck in your throat so that I I tore out the pages from the script mm. and I ate them and I vomited on stage. That was my grand gesture, I suppose, which is ludicrous. But. And, and I, I take your and I see you're embarrassed in some ways, but there's, I, that's not the point about this. It's not trying to pick you up on that because mm. I think in some ways, maybe this speaks to what Broken Talkers have always tried to do, mm. which is it's not that you just want to smash down every tradition that's there in terms of theatre, but you really want to say, if we put that to the one side, can we find some new way of expression? Yeah, it was always it was always that idea, and it still is about trying to find something new. And you know, the I think the eating of the books and the you know the, that's mm. one ex- one example that I shared with Danny, and we said, well, we have to put that in because Danny kind of nails me really, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> on it in, a, in quite a funny way. Yeah, um, it is it is hilariously funny too, because we're talking about serious things here. But you 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 both presented in the script that I read certainly in a very uh, humorous way. Yeah, because I suppose that the. You have to as well, like you, you know. If if I if I seem to be taking myself very seriously at the start of the show, that's even funnier, isn't it? Yeah. it that you know that Danny kind of kind of raises an eyebrow and just asks like the most basic question, like was the show a success? And I say, no, it wasn't. Obviously, <laughs> you know, um, and nobody asks why. No. <laughs> Danny, you, you said to me coming in the door, I thought, where's your recording? Because I couldn't see it. It was kind of around your back. And you said you never go anywhere without it. Never leave home without it, Sean, or maybe more than one. Yeah, it's it's been something I've carried since I was a child. Yeah. 
So it, yeah. it very much is part of it. And I suppose when you look at the way an accordion, as you strap it onto yourself there, it really becomes part of the of the body. You're going to play a tune for us. We need to know the lineage of the tune now that you've, you've told us, the lineage of others. Indeed. Um, <clears throat> this is a piece um, that, that Gary, um, and he'll be very um, happy that I said piece. Um, <laughs> this piece, musical piece, um, I heard uh, as a young guy uh, when I was growing up in Brown's Kitchen where a lot of my early musical life happened in a, in a wonderful and memorable way with great characters and, and wonderful people. And um, a lot of the music I would have heard there for the first time. So this is a piece called Hardy Man the Fiddler. And it's an old traditional piece. And in the course of, of Hardy Man the Fiddler being with me, it, it, it has changed and mm. yeah, moved, moved along with myself and, and my way of thinking about that particular tune, yeah. Okay, let's hear Hardy Man the Fiddler, so. Thanks, John. absolutely beautiful Danny um, and I love I love how you finish it there and that kind of almost incomplete that kind of unfinished note you don't resolve it down spot on because it, it remains incomplete yeah 
which possibly speaks to something within the tradition itself, because the presumption is, oh, you're just repeating what was gone before you and that's your job is to repeat it and don't do anything with it. The way you finish that almost feels to me like musically you're handing it you're handing it on. Yeah, that's passing it on. It's it's ready for the next person to, to take it to wherever they feel it can go. These pieces are changing, they're constantly changing, evolving. You know, I, I think the best of our, our traditional music can yet come. Mm. Yeah, and, and the word traditional is is misleading in that respect because there's some presumption that it's static, that it it stays and it doesn't it mm. doesn't change, which of course speaks more to, more to theatre uh, uh, than anything else in, in that respect. Gary, if you think about a play, even when it's put on first, it is that production, a new pro- uh, even in traditional theatre, a new production of that play twenty five years later is a totally different play. Absolutely, and that's something we're learning, I suppose, uh, from Danny as well, is that this this music and this craft and is you know is developing, and it's it's you know uh, it's in the hands of artists like Danny that the music can be kind of um, reinterpreted, mm. you know, and and it's uh, yeah, I suppose just the the. It's it's thrilling to watch Danny play. It's thrilling to hear Danny speak about, uh, I suppose, the the future as well as the past. Yeah. yeah. And there's a dancer involved in this as well. I, I mentioned Emily yeah. and Kenny Roddy. And I thought we've another county, we've another county to fit into the GAA mix there. But thankfully, it's hurling. We shouldn't mention that with Dublin possibly either, though, at the moment. Anyway, um, what what is Emily's role within all of that then, Gary? Sure. Emily... Uh, uh, re- represents um, young Danny. So that was the Danny and I and Phelan were making were mm. chatting over Zoom for those couple of years trying to figure out what what would be the best way to tell Danny's story. Something that we wanted to do sort of from from a young age to because that's when his connection with the accordion uh, happened. You know, at a relatively mm. young age, and we wanted to we wanted to present that, and we thought a dancer uh, would be the best collaborator actually because hearing how Danny speaks about the visceral connection he has with the instrument in terms of the vibration in terms of what's happening for him internally behind the closed eyes he looks relatively still if you're watching on the webcam he's not moving terribly much yeah. but there's a lot going on in, ter- in, t- in terms of internal vibrations and memories and all this sort of stuff and we just thought dancer dancer yeah because I, 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 it really struck me it's funny that you say that I was watching you as you played Danny and you became somebody else to me. It was like a, you know, the way an actor can transform in terms of being a character. You became this other, this other being almost sitting there. And the way then the, the tune started, you teased it so the, the accordion, you will probably say, is the, one of the most maligned instruments out there. It certainly is maligned quite often. Like you started it so gently, almost like a slow air on a, on a pipes or something like that. You know, it had that feel to it. And then obviously as the tune went along, it, it, it moved into somewhere else. Do you know where you're, are you transported to somewhere as you play or what is that set of emotions within you? Yes, <clears throat> is the very short answer to that because like when, when I think of that piece, I, I think of where I played it perhaps last or who was there. And I have this sense, I suppose, Sean, and, and it's probably to do with, with getting older. When I play in recent years, I want it to be of real value. So each time I play, I want it to be worthwhile, valuable, impactful, so that it's a, a valuable shared experience. 
And when I think of those pieces, I think of the people that I valued, perhaps where I got the tune, who gave me the tune initially. You know, I'm, I'm there with me while I'm playing it. And I, I, I feel their input yeah. while I play. Like when I play Tom Cameron's accordion, I feel Tom's presence, even though he died the year that I started playing in 1986. He was born in 1893, so he had a long life. He was 92 before RTE got to record him. And Harry Bradshaw would say that it was his seminal interview because Tom Camerody was the first man that could tell exactly how the recording process happened in the Columbia Studios. He was the only man to come back to report that because the rest of the great musicians, unfortunately, died in America, died young. So Harry's information was second-hand information he had up to that point. So handing it on in the way that a tune is handed on to a, to, a, to a traditional musician. There is a moment in the show where they take, in the piece, sorry Gary, where they, where they take the accordion off you and you are on stage without it. What is that feeling? It's, it's, a, it's a bare feeling and it's a, a quite a vulnerable feeling. I have kind of sat... With, with this as as my barrier between me and others mm. and you're hold, you're always hugging the you're, you're hugging the the accordion there as a kind of a, a as you say a, a, to protect you as much as to protect it yes indeed and and that's my all the sense of it as soon as i got my first accordion it was christmas eve 1985 and I, I remember looking at it for hours that night, just getting lost in the patterns of the celluloid of the shiny new red instrument and the, the reflection of the mother of a pearl buttons. And it was like, you know, I, I had found what I was yearning for. And, and I, I from that point on, I, uh, I, I was just in need of it, really. I, I had found what I was looking for in terms of a, a companion, I guess. I want to play a, a, a piece of recording that you brought in for us, which is this starts with a jig. Is this a, is this is this a specific jig or is it a jig specially composed for the for the for Bellow itself for the show? Well, I was lucky enough to to spend a bit of time in Reykjavik um, with our sound designer um, and uh, a brilliant man, Valger Sigurdsson. Sigurdsson, and indeed we experimented and had great fun. Uh, Collaborating, hmm. and that's one thing I do want to mention as well in terms of this process. Five years as it's going on, from the very first day in in the in the Clarence Hotel here in Dublin, there was an instant connection between the, the three of us, hmm. Gary, uh, Phelan, and I. That has extended to the entire um, personnel of Broken Talkers um, that that is involved in the room of the hmm. development of this piece, and it was also in Reykjavik with Valger. So we had great uh, fun experimenting and uh, this is the piece I played at some point. I had forgotten entirely about it until it came up recently. Yeah. He brought it back when he came over recently. It's um, it's an old jig. The start of it is a really old piece that I associate with the, gla- the great Clare fiddler Paddy Kenny called Coppers and Brass. And uh, Valgear then decided to have his experimentation with it. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll hear that coppers and brass to, to start out and then, as you say, Velgar Sigurdsson takes that and moves onwards with it. Mm-hmm. 
I don't want to. I don't want to listen to the entire thing because <laughs> that will give the whole thing away. Can you tell us what's happening, or is is that too? Is that too much to, as to where that fits into the action of Bello? Yeah, Gary? I think w- w- uh, this this sound piece that we're listening to at the moment um, actually accompanies a, a movement duet between uh, Danny and Emily. Mm. And within that short movement section, they're both exploring the, I suppose, this idea that you've spoken about earlier about how Danny feels or has felt um, in the abs- with the absence of the accordion. So when he can't play... Um, the the feelings that he uh, experiences in, in those in those moments. Yeah. So they're 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 exploring that uh, yeah. that set of feelings and 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 uh, as a, as a movement piece, it's 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 quite beautiful to watch. Yeah. Just to finish up, then, if I can, Danny, I know that you had seen Mary Coughlin did a show with the lads, uh, and and which was telling her own story as well. How has that? How did that? feed into what you wanted to do and inspire you to maybe do what you wanted to do which was to look at telling about this lineage telling about this tradition in a different way from simply playing the tune There was something when I experienced being in the audience of Woman and Done uh, Mary's show with with Broken Talkers the authenticity of of what I experienced remained with me for quite a while I I felt really um, impacted by the experience and I really felt that a conversation with with these lads would would be fruitful Um, and uh, I I certainly had that thought no I didn't ever think it would come to pass Hmm. that was before um, any developments in terms of UCC so this this process came into place uh, and and I'm very grateful that it has because it's an expression. The lads can really take something and, and mould it and yeah. shape it in, in a way that um, is very unique and brilliant. And may I say, Danny, I'd say you're no stranger to authenticity yourself. That's that's very clear. Uh, amazing to speak with both of you and the show, I must say, the piece sounds <laughs> incredible. I'll call it both things. Bellow. And obviously the bellow is a reference to the, the in and out of the accordion itself. Yeah. There we go. Bello is at the Project Arts Centre from the 21st of February through until the 2nd of March. Then heads to the Drihad Arts Centre in Drogheda. That's on the 7th of March. And the Everyman in Cork on the 12th and 13th of March. Is there an overall website, uh, Gary, that people can go to? Yeah, um, www.brokentalkers.ie Brokentalkers.ie Gary Keegan, Danny O'Mahony, thanks for being with me this evening. Quint, played in the 1975 film Jaws by Robert Shaw, is a cult fictional figure who famously survived the Second World War sinking of the USS Indianapolis, where almost 1,000 men died in shark-infested waters. A new novel by Robert Lautner follows Quint's life from the aftermath of that incident until his arrival on the island of Amity and the fictional events of Jaws, within which he flashes back to the scene of the tragedy in a vivid first-person narrative. Robert Lautner has said his book, Quint, is a tribute motivated by arguably one of the greatest speeches in cinema. I wanted to give a history and an afterlife to a magnificent character and a performance that moves me to this day. Henry White is with me in studio. He's been reading the novel, Quint. Let's start with that famous speech from Jaws, delivered by Robert Shaw as the character Quint. 1,100 men went into the water. The vessel went down in 12 minutes. 
Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. Tiger, 13-footer, you know? You know that when you're in the water, Chief? You tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. What we didn't know was our bomb mission had been so secret, no distress signal had been sent. <laughs> they didn't even list us overdue for a week. Very first light, Chief. Sharks come cruising. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. You know, it's kind of like old squares in a battle, like you see in a calendar, like the Battle of Waterloo, and the idea was, shark comes to the nearest man, that man, he start pounding and hollering and screaming, sometimes the shark would go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red and in spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in they... Rip you to pieces. <laughs> Robert Shaw there in that scene from Jaws. What a speech that is. Makes your hair stand on end. It, it really does. So that speech is basically or was the inspiration for Robert Lautner to write the book Quint. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we're talking about one of the most iconic soliloquies in 20th century cinema. And you would be... You find it very difficult to find somebody who's seen Jaws who wouldn't think of that scene as mm. one of the most resounding scenes in the entire thing. And I mean, it only lasts six minutes long. I mean, and that particular bit about the Indianapolis is only four minutes. Um, so Lautner basically went ahead and did what probably a lot of people have thought, which is what was this guy's life like before he was hired by mm. Amity Town Council to go out and find this killer shark that's been tormenting this uh, this lovely uh, seaside resort. So there's 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 clues within that yeah. that he basically constructs this entire universe out of. And, and just to be clear, the events of the USS Indianapolis, that is a real event yes. on which the Quint speech was based and now I'm guessing the Quint novel. Where does the novel bring us? Does it go right back to before he was ever in the army and World War Two, or where does it start? Well, it, it takes the format of a journal that's been found with Quint's belongings, which have since come into the uh, possession of the mayor, uh, Mayor Vaughan of, oh, uh, right. of, of Amity. So, and he says in a little. <laughs> this kind was of, Murray Hamilton in the in the exactly in the film. Yeah, yeah. who's uh, you know quite an interesting character. Um, so he says that he's he was given he was given the the estate and effects of Quint, and within it was found this journal. And what we are reading is basically the journal, and it's it basically tracks Quint's life from his his sort of drifter years between leaving the navy with all that trauma, obviously, from the Indianapolis disaster. So everything is post the Indianapolis yeah, it's, disaster. It's him, okay. look, it's him looking back on it and him reflecting. And, because it, and it's written in the style of a character like Quint, who you can imagine is kind of, you know, quite scattered in his memories and quite traumatised by what he's been through. So it drifts back to, you know, his, his poverty 
up, his his impoverished upbringing in Boston to, you know, uh, a Limerick-born father, and he talks about his Irish American identity. He talks about being in the Navy. He talks about, you know, how he prefers the company of dogs to people. There's there's three wives in the rearview mirror. He actually references one in that that mm. speech in the film, um, and then and in the course of the journal of reading, he tries to re-enroll in the Navy. Mm. He's unsuccessful in this and he decides he'll go to Amity and start a game fishing, a game fishing charter boat business. And that's the character that yeah. we know from the film. Mm. I was saying to you as we were listening to the to the speech from the film, uh, Henry, that there's a real feeling of improvisation of that dialogue. Shaw, I think you, you were saying to me, had quite a, an input, particularly in terms of that scene mm. and in that aspect of the character. How has Lightner yeah. picked up on that? Well, I mean, the, the the character appears in in uh, Peter Benchley's book, the mm. 1974 book that the film is based on. Um, the scene that we see uh, involving the, the backstory of the, the Indianapolis, that came later, that came during the screenwriting for the film and it's put together by Robert Sackler, who was Spielberg's screenwriter. But Shaw co-wrote it with him. And and the the the, the nuances of that scene, that of the you know the the, the rhythm of it, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the, the grit that's there, that was all Shaw, who was a playwright. You must remember as well as being yeah. an actor. Yeah, so he had that he had that facility to write a character, and and Lautner then in what he does because if it's a journal, it's a first person uh, journal. Mm. He's talking about what he did. I did this. I went there. I did that. So it has that still that first person feel to it. Do you hear Robert Shaw as you read it? Did you hear him delivering oh, it? Oh, you can you can smell the whiskey on Robert Shaw's breath as he whispers this book into your ear. The way that Lautner has, um, uh, I suppose it's it, it's almost like a it's almost like an act of literary ventriloquism. This he's he's taken these you know these flecks of dialogue from this this mm. film and he's he's whittled it into a tool that he can use across you know a, a novel length book, and uh, it's incredibly it's uncanny. Really, it's uncanny the way that he just he just manages to capture that that sort of slurred, gritty yeah. clip that uh, that Shaw was able to bring to the voice, which is informed by you know a, a very heavily Irish American inflection mm. that was there. Is is he a sympathetic character? I mean, because there's something about him in the film which I think is probably where most people will know. Maybe people have read the book as well, the Peter Finchley book. But it, it, the, even as he's destroyed. Spoiler alert! If you haven't seen Jaws, even as he's killed at the end of that, you feel some sympathy for him. Mm. He he manages to do that despite his real harshness and hardness. Does that come across? Do we get more into the mind of the man himself in the in this novel? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, it's probably the reason that scene in the film is is so resonant for people because he's not on paper a lovable character. You know, he's mm. he's quite gruff. He's uh, he's impersonable. He doesn't want to hang out with people. He, um. But um, so, so do, do, do we get that sense then of the pain behind the we, gruffness? We definitely do, and we get a real insight into the trauma. I mean, the the passages where he is detailing what happened during the Indianapolis disaster. I mean, they are they are nightmarish, and you come to realize that they are they are the nightmare that informs his worldview, informs everything about it, up to the point where he becomes hell bent on catching sharks and making a living from it. Mm. Uh, it's so the, he it's keeps. The, he, does he keep flashing back to that Indianapolis? He does. Moment? Yeah, it kind of wafts in and out through the course of the book while he's talking about other other 
parts of his life or other roads that life took him down. Um, and then when he arrives at Amity, he has to try and carve out a bit of a patch for himself amongst all the other game fishermen that are there. So he heads out one night and he decides he's going to bait the local sharks with a whale carcass that's been, he's heard about on a, on a distant mm. beach. And this nighttime expedition doesn't go very smoothly and he runs into trouble. He's out in his house by himself in the boat. And that's the point in the book where the memories from the Indianapolis really coagulate and really come in and they come in, they come in thick and they're, they're sort of, uh, they're fragmented through the struggle that he's having out in this boat in the middle of the mm. night. And it's, uh, it's, it's incredibly horrific and nightmarish. Do we get a sense of many other characters in his life in, in the Lautner book? Uh, well, I mean, there's there's none from the character of Jaws. I mean, mm. you, part you would expect a book like this would bring you right up towards the the events of Jaws itself, but actually, it cuts off quite a few years before that. Um, I mean, we hear about his father. We hear about you know the uh, the sort of the the burden of being Irish American uh, at a time when Irish American immigrants weren't entirely as welcome as they mm. perhaps are today in the states and. He talks about how Irish people were more disposed to the Navy rather than the Army because Paddy's bones float. Don't you forget that Paddy's bones float. Um, and he says, you know, he says things like, you know, if you if you got a boat, you've got a, you got a job and you've got a place to live and Irish people fix things. That's what we do. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a novel where where very much, you know, the, the voice, um, the character are to the fore. I mean, in terms of instant, there isn't a huge amount because it's just him reflecting on things. Sounds a bit like, you know, what, the old man in the sea, in a kind of a way, it's just him and the boat to a large extent. Pretty much. And I mean, and the sea seems to be the only law that he observes and obeys and has any respect for. And he's got very, he's got very deep and very hard-won opinions about the sea and, and what can happen to you out there and how you must respect it. And yeah. sharks, of course, as well. I mean, it's a it's very fatalistic voice, this this right through and, and that's what fans of the film are going to really savour about it. So you enjoyed it? Did you expect to enjoy it going into it? I kind of didn't. I mean, it's it's sort of a corny idea. It's kind of Jaws fan fiction really mm. and you're you're going, God, is this, is this really going to gonna you know work out? And then it, just that, that voice just takes you over. It's so, it's so, it's so perfectly pitched. So it's just the register has been captured so well and it's almost, it's almost in the unsaid of a voice like that yeah. as well it's what it's what's just below surface level that Lautner is really able to to bring out you know. Lautner has succeeded uh, he really has I think this book was one of the most uh, surprising literary miracles that I've come across in a, in a long time a and, big recommendation um, Definitely, yeah. I think fans of the film should should absolutely pick up a copy. But I mean, you could almost go into this knowing nothing about the character, and it's uh, it's a rollicking man in the sea style yeah. yarn. Yeah. All right, that's Hilary White speaking to me about the novel Quint by Robert Lautner, which is published by the Borough Press. The world-renowned guitarist Milos Karadalic makes a very welcome return to the National Concert Hall next month. He will be here with the Archangelo Ensemble and their artistic director, Jonathan Cohen. Milos came to prominence in 2011 with his internationally acclaimed debut album, Mediterraneo. Five years later, he earned a well-deserved spot on BBC Music Magazine's prestigious list of six of the best classical guitarists of the past century amongst its number, Andres Segovia. For this 
concert in Dublin. We will see Milos pairing of, of a pairing of ensemble and soloists to perform a feast of European Baroque masterpieces: Vivaldi, Marcello, Bach, Pachelbel, Rameau, Couperin, to name but a few. Repertoire that Milos Karadalic and Arcangelo have recently recorded on Sony Classical. Delighted to be joined on the line by Milos on this uh, Monday evening. Uh, Milos. Uh, <laughs> Going to Baroque music, I just have to go straight in there. It's not the most obvious spot for a guitarist to go to. Not at all. And big hello to you guys in Dublin. Um, I uh, am just so, so lucky that I was uh, brave, I think, <laughs> to as a, as a classical guitarist or maybe mad. Um dive into this repertoire because when it comes to classical guitar we are um, of course very familiar with Bach and a handful of composers mm. but I was always a bit annoyed uh, why is it that when I'm listening to countertenors or violinists or harpsichorders that they have this wealth of repertoire that is so exciting and so fabulous and like how could I bring that into my world how could these two worlds merge together how can we create a crossover which is not a dirty word as it's mm. known but it's like a, the the right way of making music feel like one and you know guitar has this wonderful uh power to be right in the middle of the world uh, it's an instrument that doesn't scare anybody it's an instrument that connects to people in this very direct very very um, mm. uh, genuine way and What's remarkable about a lot of this music that over the many months that I was researching the repertoire I found was how relevant it is to a 21st century listener. And some of the lines in the Rameau and the Kupran, you listen to them and you think they could have been written yesterday and yet they were written three, four hundred years ago. Um, and the guitar is a perfect voice for that because it's the voice that unites the worlds. Well, Tony was an amazing help, of course, you know, yeah. and, 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 you know, he's a specialist and I am the guitarist from a totally different romantic tradition. So, so finding our common, common voice here was, was, yeah. was probably artistically the nicest process of my you've, life. So you've far. mentioned specifically there the Rameau piece, uh, The Arts and the Hours, Les Arts et les Airs, and how that really does speak to a, a contemporary audience. And it really did strike me when listening to it today that it could have been composed yesterday or maybe even sometime time this morning it has that freshness about it let's let's have a listen to that ramo piece
just a little opening section there from the arts and the hours. Les Arts, the music of Jean-Philippe Rameau. And one of the pieces, since it is on the new album, that I'm guessing that Milos Karadalic, guitarist, will play with the Arcangelo Ensemble when he is at the National Concert Hall on March the 6th, I do believe, is the, is the right date. I'll double-check that. The seventh, so March actually, the 7th, March the 7th. The seventh, yeah. You're absolutely right. <laughs> do you know, normally people who are talking to people say, I'm not sure when it is, but you had it absolutely right, March the 7th. Well, can I tell you the secret? Like bef- before we went on air, I actually looked in my calendar. I was like, I better not get this one wrong because for me they all merge into one. Well, of course, yeah. When you're on when you're on tour as you are with the album at the moment, I guess that is part of it. You mentioned, you know, and there is a very modern feel to that. If it wasn't for that little um, ornamentative section at the end of each of the phrases, which. I suppose does place it in the period. It has a very modern feel to it. I guess this yeah. it, this speaks to you and where you started out. Was the young Milos Karadalic uh, uh, a rock and roll fiend who had his electric guitar and would never have thought of going anywhere near the Baroque period to find a piece of music to play? <laughs> well, I don't know. The little Milos in Montenegro had very different ideas, but then life happens. Um, and you discover the world and you discover how important beauty is in life. And for me, ever since I have existed, I feel that discovering beauty has been the currency of my life. And through the guitar, I've been able to discover more of it than I ever dreamed was possible. And, and so, you've, you've gone across like several genres in even in your early career, if you think of that debut album Mediterranean, uh, Mediterranean whichever way one would say it, it that's, that's perhaps what most of us would think of when we hear classical guitar. We'll think of that Spanish flavour and that Mediterranean yes. side to it. You know, you moved through that to The Sound of Silence where you had clearly a reference to popular music and then there's the whole there's the album of of Beatles tunes as well and all is interested to see that you number the Beatles alongside Bach that's that's big company to put them in well it's because music is music and I always felt that good music is good music and you know the context of my earlier releases which was as you said, um, the Spanish music, mm. the Latin American music, the concerti. It came out in the time when not much of that was around at all. Um, there, there haven't been, um, there hasn't been so much exposure for the classical guitar. And I think that that sense of classical guitar had to be reawakened through the repertoire that people kind of know where they connect with. And mm. that really opened the door to, to a totally different world for, for, for guitar for, for guitar and for the listeners of the instrument, for myself and my own career, but also for the for the newer generations of guitarists that are now doing great things. And this is something that makes me very, very happy because there is there is there is now again an audience for the instrument and and it has to happen like that but then in your own uh, unique your own artistic journey you with all of that audience on board you 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 learn to open yourself yeah. up and i open myself up to the music of the beatles because you know that music has also stood the test of time for many decades or you know the albums that followed afterwards and commissions and you know mm. working with modern composers there's just so much because music is just one thing and you know your background and your your fundamental value that that underlies all of that is one thing but you know exploration and and seeking for beauty you can find it in in anything 
And the, the other aspect that I wondered when you, because you've talked about this search for beauty, I think a couple of times since we started speaking, Milos, you grew up in Montenegro, as I say, at a very difficult time in the Balkans, it has to be said, you know, a, a very violent war-torn period in, in Balkan history. How has that fed into uh, your music? I'm wondering about that search for, for beauty, if it, in, if, it, if it in some ways was part of the reason that you, you did went that direction. You know what's wrong? It's a very, very um, uh, uh, interesting of you to, to mention that because I, I really feel it has everything to do with it because on a, some sort of a subconscious level, I was able to create a beautiful world with my guitar, no matter what the world outside looked like. And if I played that guitar in front of my family or our friends or at music school, I was able to draw people right into it. And this was the place where I was safe and where I was one with something that was so special and which was the language I could speak to anybody around me. And I feel that if I was born anywhere else, I probably wouldn't have been a musician because I wouldn't have had that earlier experience Mm. to understand what a privilege it is to be a musician. And that's the privilege I take on stage every day and every time that I perform today. It hasn't changed a bit. I'm going to take in underneath us a, a little bit of the Vivaldi Concerto because I want to hear the I want the audience to hear the Archangelo Ensemble as we finish up. That uh, combination of ensemble and guitar, how vital is that to you in terms of what you want to do at the concert and in the, on this album, Milos? Oh, it creates a totally, totally different energy. And working with Johnny and Arcangelo has been unbelievable because we are able to create as delicate moments as we want and as bravura exciting moments that, that are that are possible. It's absolute fireworks and Vivaldi is never short of fireworks and I just love it. Let's listen to you playing him. Sorry, I can only get a little minute of it, of it in there, but I just wanted people to get a sense of that bravura nature that you say is there uh, quite rightly when the ensemble and guitar are together. Milos, thanks so much for being with us this evening. And I will remind people that it is the seventh. Thanks very much, uh, Milos. Thank you so much. I can't wait to be there. Wow. I love the National Ball and the Odyssey. Wow, that's See great. you soon. See you soon, Milos. That's Milos Karadalic. Uh, you can catch Milos with the Archangel Ensemble at the National Concert Hall, March the 7th, as he quite rightly said. NCH.ie will give you all of the details. That is our lot for this Monday evening. Paul Shields researched. Amandine Passadivine and Ollie Hamilton were the broadcast coordinators. Uh, Reg, uh, no, Ashley Grufferty was on sound. Reg Luby was producing uh, on this Monday evening. I will be back with you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.